continue in our series that we've been working on this semester is the stories that Jesus told. Uh, if you're not terribly familiar, Jesus is a very good storyteller, remarkably subversive in nature, and uh, he didn't tell stories just to inform, often uh, rather to subvert and transform. And uh, such is the case tonight. We're in Luke 13. Uh, no doubt you've seen. Uh, probably in the newspaper, but maybe in real life, uh, a, a bunch of people carrying a, a big sign, a big piece of cardboard paper. Those things you stopped doing in fourth grade, but they're still carrying it around. That reads, repent on it. And uh, when you see those things, you usually come to a couple quick conclusions. Something like, that guy's a nut. Or, that guy's judging a bunch of people. Or, uh, simply, uh, that guy has some behavior that he wants me to change and be like him. Uh, but today what we're going to see is that uh, Jesus actually, believe it or not, kind, loving Jesus, is carrying a big repent sign around. Exactly holding it up to other people that are carrying big repent signs around. <laughs> hey you, look at this. And you, and me, all of us. He's calling everyone to repent. And it's sort of troubling because we don't like the word. It's, um, well, it's been thrown around cheaply and meanly as of late. So uh, we'll have to deal with that. The text is uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Nine verses. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, they will all likewise perish. He told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, came seeking fruit on it, and found none. He said to the vineyard dresser, or the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? He answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. All right, pray with me real quick. Jesus, thank you uh, for the story you shared. And uh, we pray that you would uh, grant us wisdom and uh, soft hearts and quick minds to comprehend what you're saying. Uh, perhaps not even yet to believe it, but to at least comprehend. And in the goodness of your time, Lord, uh, press us to believe, we pray. As you sing in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The sign said, Now entering Missouri. It's not the sign I wanted to see. See, I had just left Missouri in a hurry. Going to a wedding. Actually, going to a wedding rehearsal. I was riding with a friend. We're on our way to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, which is south southeast from Missouri. And uh, we've been gone on the road about three or four hours. And we looked up and saw now entering Missouri. And silently, it registered with both my friend and I that uh, somewhere along the way we admitted a faulty turn. And in our immense human pride and general uh, male unwillingness to admit we were lost, we said nothing. We had to be somewhere in about two hours. And, and we knew we had gone off the path uh, some ways back. And we actually drove on for some miles in silence until one of us, I'm not sure which one, said, Did you see that? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> The truth is, we had missed the turn over an hour earlier. We didn't know 
And the sad thing is, we had actually driven that way independently numerous times. He drove the right way dozens of times on his way home. We had simply miscalculated. And uh, the sad thing was, if we had recognized this earlier, we could have adjusted our course and gotten there on time. But in our, in our weakness and our unwillingness, uh, we were not ready to admit we were lost, that we had gone off the track. We were not willing to turn around and ask for help. Uh, it's hard to admit sometimes that you need to turn around, that you need to change course. It, it can be hard to do if you've uh, set in your ways, set on your course. And that's what we're talking about tonight. That's exactly what the word repentance means. Uh, it means to change, uh, to have a change of mind, a change of heart, to change a course, turn from one thing to another. And uh, it, it's hard to do. We don't like stopping and turning. Life itself has momentum. It's much easier to keep going the way we're going than to stop and turn. And we're going to see in our text tonight is Jesus is uh, calling us uh, to repent, to turn. And it's possible because he's both gracious and because growth is necessary. Uh, because Jesus is gracious, because growth is necessary, uh, we must turn to him. So the topic again is repentance. It's this, I think, seems to me, rather unpopular word, either outdated or unpopular. Uh, but I think it's one of the best good words we have, still. And uh, we're going to talk about it under two headings. What is the problem that makes repentance necessary? And what is required? So what's the problem? And uh, we have this interesting account here where uh, some people are present. Actually, the language reads uh, originally, they come to him and told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. If you read carefully here, what you're reading is an atrocity. Um, a pilot was um, not the most able or generous of uh, governors. In fact, later on he was replaced by the emperor for being sort of incompetent. And this actually is something that he may have done. But there's no historical proof he did anything like this. Uh, and, and most uh, commentators think what happened here is that uh, you have here an atrocity story. And this is the kind of thing that happens in a war-torn land where you're politically oppressed, as these people were. You have these mean people that are always beating up on you. And sometime past, something like this may have happened. And so it's really easy for a report like this, maybe even a rumor, to surface. Now, maybe someone got roughed up by a soldier in Galilee. And then like two weeks later, as a report finally arrives to you, 18 people got slaughtered in the tabernacle and Pilate ground up their bones and mixed it with the sacrifices. Do you believe that? And the response is supposed to be, how could he? May Pilate die a thousand deaths. May the Romans be scattered with their bones rot. Or something like that. I'm just making that I assume that's what you're supposed to say. That's what these people would have said. Uh, the natural response to an atrocity story is, may they die a thousand deaths. May, may God curse them and destroy them. And uh, Jesus does something rather different. It's like, really? Interesting. Um, he asks, do you think these Galileans, and he's actually from Galilee, were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered? He's asking... Uh, question about morality. And he goes on and asks it again, uh, how about those 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell? And here, this is actually a real historical event. Somewhere in Jerusalem, this tower fell on 18 people and killed them. Were they worse sinners than the other people around them? And Jesus is saying, uh, let me work on two different fronts with you folks. First of all, you have a faulty, you have a sort of a faulty logic here that's working. Um, Jesus is saying, this is what's happening with you guys, I think. 
you think these people are worse sinners than others, and so God is punishing them in a more horrendous way. I had a friend, uh, he's a pastor like me, his dad is not a Christian, his dad is actually a hard-drinking uh, agnostic, as opposed to a hard-drinking Christian. <laughs> but um, his friend was very, his father was very skeptical of his faith and rubbed it in often. And my friend Dave was having a very hard summer. Couldn't find a job. Got struck by lightning in a parking lot, in a Walmart parking lot. And uh, it's even worse. And then um, a month later, he's rehabbing a house. He's taking a tile down, and a brick falls and smashes him in the head. This all happens like in a three month period. His dad says, "Tell us seriously, son. I think God's angry with you." Now, that doesn't believe in God. But this is one of these deals, and this is so easy for us to do, to look at the way things play out in life and say, man, what did you do? What did you do, son? God's, God's out to get you. What did you do to deserve this kind of treatment? And I think it's very easy for people to, to think this way. Um, and in fact, Christians are sometimes the worst people at thinking this way. After 9-11, it didn't take five minutes before um, some rather... Inconsiderate and very thoughtless uh, Christian televangelists to say terrible things about America being punished and so forth. No doubt there were Christians in the building that got killed that day. Uh, it's really easy to make simple, logical, but faulty logical uh, conclusions regarding the nature of sin and suffering. We just simply can't logic or reason backwards from some terrible atrocity to say, those people were terrible and they deserved it. It's so easy for us to do. Jesus is saying, you can't do that. Because the truth is, you're all bad. You're all bad, and you all need to repent. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what's so shocking. Yeah, they died in a tragic, horrible way. So what? So what? You all need to repent, or you'll perish. That's what Jesus is saying. And, uh, and I think he's also exposing something else, which is their false righteousness. And their false righteousness is a result, or is evident, in their cause. Uh, their cause seems to be a nationalistic one, if it's real. They could have been something a trap, we don't really know, but it's this nationalistic cause. Hey, we're suffering under the Romans. Hey, uh, we've been mistreated. Hey, God, please bless us, help us, deliver us. And because of their cause, because of their political affiliation, because of their ethical stance, they think, I'm on God's side. I'm okay. Righteousness is on my side. It's going to be right. And, and Jesus is saying, no, actually not. You know, God's not on your side. It, it, independent of your moral position, your theological position, your ethical position, your political position, you're not on his side. He's not on your side. It doesn't work that way. You all need to repent. Uh, God doesn't play party politics. He doesn't. Uh, and it's really easy for us to identify certain causes and to think, I'm working hard for this. And it may be a good cause. There are lots of good causes that you should work for. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But to think, because I'm working hard in this area, in America, it's simply, because I work hard and I'm smart and I'm a nice person, everything's okay, God must bless me. It's not that simple to think, I'm okay with God. Um, there's this ridiculous movie made about 12 years ago called PCU. Anyone ever seen PCU? No. It's ridiculous. It's called Politically Correct University. And uh, one group of students in particular are dubbed the Causies. Because every week they have a new cause. Uh, and it's always ridiculous, and there's, and there's never, um, they're, they're poking fun at all kinds of people and all kinds of causes, and I'm not making fun of causes. But um, it really does expose the false righteousness. They would actually cheer for diametrically opposed causes within a given month and not realize it. And uh, it's just really easy to wear the badge 
of righteousness. And I'm okay, I'm on the side of all that's right because of my cause, and to think, therefore, I'm good with God and good in general. And Jesus is saying, wait, 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 it doesn't work that way. It's good for you to be behind justice and righteousness and peace and mercy and fight for freedom and so forth, but just don't think you're okay with God because of that. It doesn't work that way. And uh, Jesus ultimately says in this first section, uh, the reality is, regardless if you suffer or not, or what side you're on, you have to repent. You as an individual are responsible and accountable. And uh, judgment is coming. God will judge. You will perish. Now, this is probably the only thing that would be more unpopular than a word like repent. The idea of judgment. Uh, But we actually like judgment. We don't like to be judged, but we like to judge. The most popular things in our culture currently are based on judgment. American Idol. We get to judge people. It's wonderful. That's where it starts. I want to have the power to judge and say, you suck. Go away. I never want to see you again. We really enjoy that. We actually love doing that. We watch YouTube clips and videos as much to read the comments as to see the performance. Because we want to see how everybody else judges everybody because it's hilarious. We actually enjoy judgment. We want to judge. We think we have the right to judge. We think it's great. We just like being judged. Um... And for the most part, we think we're okay so long as we can come to the conclusion, I'm right, or righter than most, and in the end I'll be vindicated. Uh, Jesus won't let us stay there. He holds up the sign to everyone. You need to repent. And uh, I don't think he's doing it maliciously. I think actually what he's doing here takes a great amount of courage. Uh, One 10th century Palestinian um, commentator said, and he would have known the culture very well. It's a miracle Jesus, was, Jesus wasn't beaten to death at the moment he said this. I mean, this is like a rally going on. I mean, we've suffered at the hands of others. The moral outrage. And Jesus says, really? Actually, I think you're the problem. <laughs> he's lucky he wasn't beaten to death. This takes a great deal of courage. Why would he do it? Is he crazy? I, I think it's because he's actually concerned about individuals. He's concerned about individuals and their hearts. Uh, well, what exactly is it that we're supposed to do? What is it that we're supposed to do? Um, repent is this word that's so cheaply and meanly thrown about. What does it really mean? What does it entail? What's required? And Jesus is nice enough in verses 6 to 9 to tell us. He tells a parable about a man who plants or has a fig tree in his vineyard. By the way, it's a fig tree in a vineyard. Isn't there like a figured? Shouldn't this... Fig tree be somewhere else. Actually, there's a very close relationship in ancient Palestine between fig trees and vineyards. It wasn't uncommon at all. And he came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. Now, it's not uncommon that he would come looking for fruit, because uh, it's his fig tree. It's very uncommon that he would come looking for fruit and not find any, because fig trees grew and produced figs ten months out of the year in Palestine. Ten months out of the year. There's supposed to be fruit on them almost all the time. Uh, growing up, we had this crabapple tree in my backyard. I never produced anything worth edible at all. I always thought year after year my childish naivety. And one year, we get like maybe one apple pie on this cursed tree. <laughs> and uh, I always defended it against my parents. I'm like, we need to keep the tree. We need to keep it. Well, it's great. And they're like, are you kidding? All it does is like drop rotten apples or inedible on the ground. Yellow jackets come, eat up all the apples, and sting you multiple times. You foolish kid. Don't you understand this tree is worthless? You know, they wanted to cut it down. Well, I liked it because I could take like the apples and like smack it with baseball bats and tennis rackets, <laughs> make it feel great. But it really was useless. It didn't produce anything good except for maybe 
oxygen. And um, <laughs> anyway, uh, this owner of the vineyard comes expecting fruit as he has every right to do. Fig trees produce fruit and finds none. And he, and he basically says, hey, three years now, I've been waiting. And uh, cut it down. And the, and the word cut it down is very interesting. And, and there is a language that's actually much more violent. We cut trees down, they dig them up. And the language here is of radical elimination. Cut it up all together because I don't even want the roots in the ground to continue to exist to suck up the moisture and nutrients around it. I want it gone. This is a vineyard. I need, need to maximize what I got here. I don't need these dead roots sucking up the nutrients. Dig it up. Get it out of here. So he comes, he's looking for fruit. And that's the first thing we know about or see about what's required. What's required is fruit, growth. Jesus, or God here, the owner of the vineyard, has the right to expect fruit from his people. And he searches. He searches intently. A fig tree from a distance, you could tell if it had fruit or not. You actually had to get close to one of the leaves, examine closely to see whether or not it actually had fruit. He does that, and he finds nothing. And uh, we've seen the nature of the judgment. It's a radical elimination. I will dig this thing and get it out, get rid of it. I, I need the land. There's something else I could grow here. And, uh, and now he's just going to get to the heart, uh, a part of the problem, which is God is doing that with people. And I want to make it clear, he's doing that especially with his people, those that identify themselves as Christians. I don't think he goes around the world expecting people outside of himself to look like him or act like him. Uh, he draws close to his own people and looks for fruit. And here we encounter that most common of, uh, perhaps one of the most common objections to Christianity, which is the church and Christianity is full of hypocrites. Gandhi himself said, I have no problem with Christ. It's his people I have a problem with. And people say often, the church is full of hypocrites. To which any mature Christian should say, yes. Yeah. That's been my experience. I'm, I'm one of them as well. And uh, uh, the problem is, we're growing. Now, we're not supposed to have it all together. We're supposed to be producing fruit. But I did want to say a couple things about this objection. Um... For those who lobby it against Christians or against the church, do you know what a careful inspection looks like? Do you actually know what you're looking for? Um, you can mistake nicety or all kinds of stuff or the kind of fruit God's looking for when really God's looking maybe for something different. And we actually never really know in a person's life where they're coming from. You may meet a Christian and say, that's about the meanest, nastiest, most profane old guy I've ever met. How in the world could that be a Christian? Well, you've never met him before. He could actually have been worse. I mean, he could have actually been a much worse person. You have no idea what kind of progress. There's a guy in my church uh, back in St. Louis where he came from. He was a lawyer in Nashville. And he was in his 60s, and he was great, but he was still frighteningly intimidating, even for me. I don't, people find me intimidating sometimes. And I was intimidated at this guy. And some friends of us would sit around and say, what in the world was David like before he was a believer? Before, like... God got his hands on him and softened him up. Uh, he was a ruthless, cutthroat lawyer. That's what he was. He was terribly intimidating. He was hard. He didn't have a heart. He couldn't care less. And uh, so we have to be really careful how we judge people because we don't know where they're coming from. But I do want to uh, talk to you that can call yourselves Christians and ask, what does a careful inspection of your life look like? The picture here is of God drawing clothes to his people Prying back the branches and the leaves and taking a close look and saying, is there a fruit here? And actually, God has been very patient. It says three years here in the text, but most commentators would say that's three years that he's waited for the harvest. 
he couldn't even start to look for the harvest until six years. So he's been waiting now nine years for this tree to produce fruit. Nine full years he's been patient. Very patient. Is there fruit in your life? And it's very easy to say, again, surrounded by all these other fig trees, from a distance you look great. So pretty. Smart. Sophisticated. Thoughtful. Read well. You groom yourself. You don't say dirty words. You don't drink too much. You don't sleep around a lot. Or if you do, you do it very discreetly. And say, I got my stuff pretty well together. I've got fruit. And Jesus isn't looking for that kind of fruit. He's not going to stop waving the sign in front of your face because he wants to see something else. And, uh, his standard is his own uh, character, and it's best exemplified in the fruit of the Spirit. And these are not things that can be faked or plastered or manufactured. Love. Do you love people? Do you love especially people that don't like you? Joy. And not just happy because your circumstances are great. And not like unplugged, naive, Disney-like, high on LSD, happy. But like, you're okay despite your circumstances. Peace. In the midst of travail, do you have peace? Again, not unplugged from reality, detached because you don't care. You know you're okay. Patience. Do you have to have your way right now? Or the God of the universe and everyone's against you. Can you wait? Can you just wait a minute? Can you can you practice patience? And I can go on, but if by now you're not convicted, then you're probably really in trouble. <laughs> uh, because these aren't things you can manufacture. And we don't live in a perfect world for these things just to grow on their own. And these are the kind of fruit that God's looking for in the lives of this people. So if you're an unbeliever looking at Christians and saying, Man, I don't see the fruit. Well, keep that list in mind. That's actually what you're supposed to be looking for in Christians. It's actually probably a higher standard than you even think. That's not something we can manufacture. It's either real because Jesus makes it real in the lives of his people, or it's all fake. Well, uh, again, what is repentance? Repentance is turning. And it's returning from our naturally barren state to what I hope is a more fruitful state. But where exactly are we turning to? And we see uh, God expects growth, but he also extends grace. This is the last thing I'm going to say. With all this talk about repentance and judgment, we wonder, what about this God of love and mercy? And we've already seen some of it. This is the ninth year. I waited for six years, now I waited another three years. This is what Scripture calls forbearance. God's patient. He's patient with his people. He's patient with his people. He's patient in general. You get a lifetime. He's patient. But you're not allowed to be presumptuous. Um, you're not allowed to be presumptuous. You're, you're free to have doubts. You're free to have struggles. You're free to grow. But you're not allowed to presume forever and just say, it's going to be all right if I just keep doing what I want. There's a big difference between doubt and presumption. Some of you may be struggling with doubt. Some of you may don't want to give this thing a second thought. It's ridiculous. Um, well, it's better to admit that than simply assume I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, presumption is dangerous because you think it's all going to be okay without even asking the question and taking a second look. So if you have that questions, if you have doubts, pursue them. Ask them. Work on them. Instead of simply presuming, it'll be okay another year. Because you must bear fruit. 
So that's part of the grace. God is patient. And the last thing we see is that uh, you can't do it alone. God is patient enough to let you alone, to give you time. That's what it actually says. Let it alone for another year. Forgive it is actually the language here. Be gracious to it. Give it some time. But actually, uh, not only does he leave you alone and give you time, he doesn't leave you alone. He comes near and goes to work on you. You see this in verse 8. This is the uh, guy in the field working. He says, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Yeah. What I'm proposing here is that is that's what Jesus wants to do to you. <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't sound very good, does it? Um, but what we're looking at here, and this is part of the image, and sorry if you're uh, not agriculturally inclined, um, is God being willing to draw near to work on you at a deep level. You don't need a few leaves cut. You don't need fruit simply picked off and taken away. You don't need the grass around you trimmed. You need a professional to come and like dig into your life, deep down to the roots, where the problem really is, and to put stuff there that's not already there. You need help from the outside. And your natural tendency when things are going wrong is to say, things are going wrong. What's wrong? Is it your fault? No, it's not your fault. Is it my mom's fault? No, it's not. Roommate's fault? No. Could be my fault? Okay, it is my fault. How do I massage this? How do I technique this? How do I change this? And what Jesus is saying, and this is probably the most radical and upsetting thing of all of it is you actually need help from outside of you. That's the nature of repentance. Repentance is not saying, I need to turn from me to a better me. I need to figure out how to manage myself better. It's actually, this is the most, this is the scandal of Christianity. And it's, it doesn't apologize for it. You need to turn from yourself, not only from your sin, but from your self-management techniques, from your self-improvement strategies to someone outside of yourself who's willing to draw near and go to work on you. My wife likes to keep rotting organic matter. It's a very strange habit. I don't know why. She collects it in like plastic tubs and leaves it around the kitchen. Rotting organic matter. She's shaking her head. She hasn't done as much lately. This is why. <laughs> Gardeners, which my wife isn't, she just likes rotting organic matter, <laughs> call this stuff compost. And what they do is they go and mix it in with soil because it's this rich, fertile oxygen, nitrogen, something or other that makes things grow. It's great, supposedly. The problem is we've lived in our house for two and a half years and we've never actually planted anything to put compost on. And so we set it out in the backyard in this pile and wondered for about three months, maybe it was two months, why groundhogs had moved into our neighborhood. Like, here's a compost pile, here's a groundhog nest. Took us two months to figure this out. <laughs> We're just eating the trash. Why? Because it's good, yummy stuff. Well, um, that life, I mean, it's, it's not very pretty, but that life-giving, dead but vital stuff is what Jesus says you need in your life. And he's actually talking about himself. I'm stretching the parable here, forgive me. But the stuff he intends to put on you is himself. It's himself. He who died but is still alive and vital, you bear fruit in your life when you're intimate with Him. And you allow Him to go to work on you. And you cultivate life with Him. Uh, Christians, those who call yourself Christians, you don't grow by saying, i got to work really hard. You don't change. You don't stop some particularly troubling habit by saying, wrapping it around your finger, i got to stop, i got to stop. Christian, the way of change is, I need more Jesus. 
my heart is hard. I'm trying to change myself by applying more of myself. That's that's not what Christianity is about. Um, it's drawing near to Jesus. And so the reason you go to church is not to be okay with God. The reason you read your Bible is not to be okay with God. The reason you pray is not to be okay with God. The reason you come here is not to put you in right standing. It's because these are means of grace by which you become more intimate with Jesus. So the way you grow. And the fruit you bear does not make you okay with Him. It's natural. It's proof that you're in Him, that you know Him. Well, last word about repentance. It's this radical dependence on someone besides yourself. We don't like it. I don't like being dependent on anybody. I really don't. And, and so it's natural. It's natural that you will not be dependent on him or anyone else until you come to see yourself as unreliable. Not in every area. You just can't do that. I, uh, I can't do my homework. I mean, you can't do it in every area of your life. But when it comes to change, when it comes to producing fruit, when it comes to breaking patterns in your life, and you know, I'm in over my head. You look outside yourself. You look to someone else to provide you life. And that's Jesus. It requires turning from yourself, turning to Him, and finding Jesus full of life. Let's pray together.